Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. And on today's episode, we're talking about the Netflix documentary American Factory and the State of the Union, labor unions to be more precise. Uh, Colin, did you know that approximately 31% of Canadian workers are unionized, which is a smidge higher than it was in 2017? It's the first time we've actually seen a rise in union members in a long time. Later in the show, we have an interview with Jim Stanford, an economist and director of the Centre for Future Work, where we dig into some of the issues facing labour unions and workers in Canada. But first up, let's take a listen to a clip from American Factory. Where you sit today used to be a General Motors plant, and now there are over 1,000 employees working here. Is this a union shop? It is our desire to not be. American Factory follows the employees hired by Fuyao Glass in Dayton, Ohio. It shows a major clash of cultures between the American workers and Chinese management. But the biggest sticking points between the two sides is unionization. So I've watched American Factory before, but this was your first time, right, Nam? Yeah, it was my first time. And I actually wondered how they got people to be so honest. Um, There was definitely a clash of cultures. But you had some scenes of Americans expressing very anti-Chinese sentiments, and the Chinese also doing the same. Uh, In one scene, when discussing why Americans couldn't be forced to work over time because of employment laws, one manager says that the Americans, I don't give a bleep about what they think. There was this frustration that Americans were coddled and raised to be, as one person said, overconfident. And on the American side, they felt sidelined and that their rules weren't being followed. One scene, uh, an employee talks about how chemicals were being poured into the sewer. Um, The two cultures approach work very differently. And there were many pressure points throughout the documentary that highlighted that. Yeah, American Factory shows why people might want to join a union as well as the tactics that some employers will use to resist unionizations in their factories. I wonder what you thought of that. I didn't even know that this was a a thing that um, companies did. Um, There's a scene with a gentleman who walks into the factory with a sign that says, Union, yes. And you can hear cheers and clapping and thumbs up from the employees on the floor. And then another American employee walks over to him and says, I've asked security to come escort you if you're going to do that. Um, So clearly, not all the American employees were supportive of a union. Um, and maybe depended on whether you're a management or not. Uh, so the gentleman with the sign continues to walk through the factory and you see a scene with like security following him, trying to get him to leave the building. Um, and I thought that was a, a bit much because America, free speech and all that. Um, like, why do you have to kick him out and escort him to his car? But you can see him at the end of the scene. He's laughing when he got into his car. So... You know, and then he says something like, you know, everybody, I, I got to be Sally Field. Yes. <laughs> like it was a scene from a movie or something. Yeah, well, there's a movie with Sally Field. She does that. I forget what it's called, but it's a very famous scene in one of her films. Well, ultimately, uh, Fuyao Glass doesn't get a union. Uh, it goes to a vote, but the union drive fails. Now, we're both actually in a union. We should just declare that up front. Um, so we know kind of how unions work, but what do you think the average person knows about unions? Uh, what I actually thought 
was interesting was what companies think unions do. Um, one of the Chinese employees said something that uh, I think kind of captures that. He says that Fuya didn't want to be controlled by the union and uh, that there's a Chinese saying that one mountain cannot hold two tigers, which kind of made me think, uh, you know, at the very beginning of the documentary, when there was a recruiter for Fuya and they were asked, you know, do you have a union? He said no. Um, and then he said very confidently that they didn't because they treat their employees well. You know, and that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? People want to be treated well by the companies they work for, and companies can say that they will, but as we as we've seen in this documentary, that's not how it works. And I think most people feel lucky just to have a job, and companies can exploit that. I don't know if most people know how unions can help in those situations because they have this idea that if I join a union, maybe I'm going to lose my job um, and joining a union jeopardizes my job. In fact, it actually protects their job. And even though, you know, you mentioned that we are both in a union, but I'm still I feel like I'm still finding out what my union can do for me. So I don't know if it's something that everybody knows. Well, for The Thread, this is uh, the show that you're hosting. It's a new data-driven current affairs show here at TVO. You just did a whole episode on reimagining work. So is unionization something that workers are talking about? Well, unionization itself didn't come up, but the frontline workers we spoke to repeatedly said that their unions were very helpful and fought for their rights during the pandemic um, from getting access to personal protective equipment and for advocating for sick days. The general sentiment was that their unions helped them to navigate the pandemic and actually made them feel safer. Now, we're having this conversation at a particularly timely moment for unions. Amazon workers in New York City recently voted to unionize. And in my conversation you're about to hear with Jim Stanford, we discuss why some companies are resistant to unionization. Now, we taped this interview before the union vote, but we decided to keep that part in because we thought there was a lot to learn about how difficult it is to organize a union. And now we'll go to that conversation. This is me and Jim Stanford from the Center for Future Work. Well, Jim Stanford, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Colin. Well, for someone who might not be familiar with a union is, just could you tell us just a bit about what they do for workers? Oh, that's a great question because, you know, we hear the, the term union bandied around a lot in the media, sometimes, you know, with very negative connotations. But uh, a lot of people don't understand what the whole idea of a union is. Uh, if you have a job, you've got a relationship with your employer and you have to discuss and decide with your employer what you're going to do, how fast you have to work, how much you have to get done, what your working conditions are, and of course, how much you get paid and what kind of benefits you get, pension, medical, etc. Now, if you're going one-on-one -on -one in that negotiation with your employer, the reality is in most cases, you don't have a lot of bargaining power. You know, I know we, the self-help literature says we're all special. <laughs> in your employer's eyes, you're usually replaceable. Unless you've got some kind of totally unique skill or talent, uh, the employer is going to look at you and think, well, can I find someone else to do it cheaper? And most of the time, the answer is yes. However, if workers get together, that kind of inherent imbalance in bargaining power that characterizes the employment relationship can be evened out a bit. Because now, instead of just looking at you and thinking you're replaceable, the employer has to look at the whole workforce and say, okay, can I operate without this workforce? And in general, the answer is no, because it is them who does the work. The employer would have no business without the overall workforce being there, present, able to do their job. 
And so by negotiating collectively with the employer, a union offsets the inherent power imbalance that exists between an employer and any single worker. Uh, Together, they've got more bargaining clout, and it doesn't mean the union calls the shots. The employer still has a lot of power over how the business operates and whether it grows or whether it even shuts down. But uh, it does give the workers much more say in uh, coming up with an agreement that is mutually beneficial, that allows the employer to function and make money, but that gives the workers some of what they want as well. Do you find most people understand how that arrangement works and how unions work and what they do? I don't. In fact, I think even most union members don't understand the kind of history and the essence of what a union is and where unions came from. You know, uh, I think sometimes people just think, oh, the union is some kind of institution. And if I have a problem, well, let's call the union. Well, guess what? You are the union. The workers are what makes up the union. And it is the, the membership and the support and, and the, the ultimate willingness of members to participate in collective action, collective negotiations, you know, raising concerns, engaging in dialogue, or even sometimes uh, taking action like a slowdown or a work stoppage. Uh, without the individual members' collective support for those actions and, and, and that functioning of the union, the union doesn't have the power. So, you know, in Canada, unions uh, have a long history. They're, uh, in general, decently resourced, and they do have um, sway, including, you know, things like representatives and lawyers and uh, researchers who can support workers in making the case with their employer. But uh, ultimately, it is the members of the union who make up the union and give the union uh, its power. So, And then particularly if you've never been in a union, you know, sometimes you might just feel a little bit of envy, you know. Uh, For example, uh, 85% of uh, union members have got an occupational pension. Less than 30% of workers without a union have an occupational pension. Having a pension is one of the absolute clearest things that a union can bring to workers. Now, if you're in a job that doesn't have a union and you don't have a pension, you might feel envious uh, at the workers who do have a pension and say, how come they've got a pension and I don't? Uh, And that makes them susceptible to the, I would say, uh, anti-union connotations that are often presented in, you know, popular political or media discussions about unions. Uh, on the other hand, there's another <laughs> there's another interpretation of that fact. If you want a pension, well, how about talk to your your fellow workers and form a union and negotiate one because that's where they came from. Well, there's some numbers that that we're going to talk about that are pretty surprising. At least they were to me. Uh, it was about a nine percent drop in union membership from I think 1981 to 2019. Only about 15 percent of private companies have unionized workers. Um, the state of union the union movement in Canada. I guess how would you I guess describe it. Um, Well, um, I I think that unions in Canada are holding their own, uh, in essence. That decline in union membership that you talked about uh, happened mostly before the turn of the century. So since uh, in in the last two decades, union membership in Canada has been pretty stable uh, at an average of around 30 percent of all workers in Canada. All employees uh, have got union representation and the things that, that come with it, pensions, benefits, higher wages, Job security is a really important one because if you're in a unionized job, the employer has to go through a whole set of uh, processes before they can get rid of you. If you're not in a union job, they can fire you literally because it's, they don't like the hockey team that you play for so uh, or cheer for. Uh, so job security is a really important one. Um, uh, 
In the private sector, however, it is a more of a kind of a dog-eat-dog battle out there. In, in public sector settings like schools, hospitals, and so on, um, the vast majority of workers have a union. In the private sector, it's a minority and it is shrinking slowly. So around 15% uh, of private sector workers, as you mentioned. And this reflects a number of things. The competitive pressures in the private sector are a lot harsher. Employer resistance uh, to unionization is a lot harsher. So uh, employers will call in consultants and have all kinds of uh, anti-union strategies to try and keep a union out of the workplace. They'll even very often threaten or uh, cajole uh, workers in their facilities to say, don't vote for the union or I might shut down. So that's a pretty heavy hammer that they have used successfully to resist unionization in, in many sectors of the private sector. Uh, on the other hand, uh, workers in the private sector do not feel fairly treated and the survey uh, evidence shows that that's true especially now with inflation going up and wages lagging way behind and all of the challenges that we faced in the COVID pandemic, I think a lot of workers in the private sector are saying, hang on here, you know, we've been through a lot and I, I think I deserve a better shake and they are starting to look more, I mean, they always have, but they're looking more at the possibility of unionizing and trying to get a better deal that way. We'll talk about the pandemic a bit because, yeah, you you mentioned uh, that, you know, this the membership rate of unions has been around steady about 30 percent. But we have see, heard some stories of of private companies uh, seeing uh, union drives. We saw, I think, uh, Unifor added, I think, uh, 500 workers from WestJet. Uh, Indigo, which is a company I used to work for, uh, added six locations, had six locations unionized, which is not something I ever thought would happen when I used to work there. Um, what's going on here? Why, why does there seem to be, I guess, a sudden interest in unionization? Uh, well, Colin, I, I actually wouldn't use the term sudden. I think this, in a way, is more more of the same. But I do think that the COVID pandemic uh, has highlighted the the risks and the challenges that that workers face in in any job. And obviously, any kind of customer facing role or any kind of job where you're hands on with the the clients or whoever else you're you're working with um, faced real challenges during COVID. I mean, you know, there were times when, you know, even the uh, jobs that we take for granted, like a cashier at the supermarket, wondered if they were going to die because they went to work. And if that question is in your mind, then even more the fact that you're paid minimum wage or close to it and you don't get regular hours becomes all the more galling. You know, it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going off to my minimum wage job. I don't know what else to do. And then to say, and I might catch a deadly disease while I'm there, you know, it has a way of concentrating the mind, let's say, and I think, uh, you know, spurring workers to say, I deserve something better than this. And in, in the case of COVID, it was things like, obviously, safety equipment, PPE, uh, right, the right protocols and so on to keep people safe and try to minimize the risk of contagion. Uh, it also included basic benefits, things like paid sick days. You know, if you don't have a union and you're in the private sector, you probably don't have the right to stay home uh, because you're sick or you're caring for someone who's sick and not lose money because of it. That, that's just a horrible thing, apart from being unfair. That is a, a, an absence in our, um, in our workplace protections that facilitated the pandemic because people went to work because they felt they had to even though they should have stayed home so uh, those types of issues i think have spurred people to say you know coming out of this pandemic and we're still not out of it yet 
we're not going to go back just to how it was before. We need something better, including basic protections in the workplace, health and safety, paid sick days, and a decent wage. You know, what was this with the grocery stores saying, you know, we'll pay everyone an extra $2 an hour pandemic pay to face, you know, recognize the risks that they face, and then just taking it away when the CEOs decided they didn't have to pay it anymore. That's that's a slap in the face. And in my experience, sometimes it's those kind of emotional incentives, you know, the feeling that you're not being respected, you're not being listened to, that are the most powerful reasons for people to get together and form a union. Hmm. A lot of those jobs, those front-facing jobs that you talked about are often staffed by very young folks. I'm wondering just to what extent, I guess, unionization rates are lower for younger people. Oh, they certainly are. And that reflects a number of things. It reflects uh, the sorts of jobs that young people are more likely assigned to. So uh, that, that includes certain occupations like hospitality, uh, restaurants, retail. Uh, that's where a lot of young people get their first job. Uh, secondly, it uh, reflects the kind of jobs that young people often take, uh, part-time jobs, uh, irregular jobs, or jobs that they're just going to do for a year or two and then go back to university. So those are the situations where it's hard to form a union because you need a kind of a base of support that you build and a bit of stability in a workplace. But there's another thing that happens, uh, Colin, as well, which is union jobs are better. That's the reality. So when people get one, they tend to hang on to it. And what's more, the various job protection measures uh, that union uh, workplaces have, for example, if a company is downsizing in a non-union environment, the boss can go around and pick who leaves and who stays. In a unionized environment, they can't. You have to have regular processes that you go through and you have rights on the basis of seniority. So uh, given all of those benefits, people tend to stick with a union job when they get one, which means there's less turnover, which means uh, for the young people coming in, um, uh, it's harder to get one of those jobs. So this is something that the union movement has to take on for sure. The, the, it's not the fault of the unions that young people can't get a union job or are less likely to get a union job. In a way, it reflects the success of unions in lifting the quality of work where a union exists. But unions still have to show that we're out for everyone, not just for people who manage to get a union job. So that means uh, having very active youth committees and young workers uh, campaigns. It also means being out there trying to organize the places where young workers work. And uh, I think especially now, you know, we've heard a lot about the, the relatively lower unemployment rate and some employers talking about a labor shortage. Um, this is a moment when I think unions could be more ambitious in saying, um, you know, even in those kind of traditional high turnover, low wage jobs like retail and hospitality, uh, these are places where they're, they're, you know, we might have a little bit more leverage now than we did in the past to try and go to employers and, and say, okay, we're going to form a union now. And that's why I think we've seen a lot of this organizing activity at Starbucks and Indigo and other, other big brand names that used to kind of take workers for granted as a low cost, throwaway productive input. And now they're being forced to treat those workers like human beings. Well, speaking of big box companies, I mean, Amazon is what, probably the biggest one out there, right? I'm wondering why, why it is that it's so hard to unionize at a place like Amazon. Well, Amazon is a, a walking, breathing argument for unionization. I mean, this is a company that is, you know, the among the most valuable companies in the world. The uh, the major owner is among the richest men in the world. Uh, the company has made hand over fist during the pandemic because of the shift to online shopping. So uh, here's a company that has a recipe that is enormously productive, but does depend still on the actual hard labor of human beings. You know, it's often called a tech company, and it obviously uses the, the internet to, to organize its business, but it's 
human beings who pack up those things in an Amazon warehouse and it's human beings who deliver them to your house. And Amazon has been ruthless in trying to minimize the cost of those inputs, uh, including the use of gig type employment models in its delivery system, uh, the use of incredible um, uh, work intensification processes in the warehouses, you know, monitoring where the warehouse worker goes and how long, how many microseconds it takes to pick up a box and guiding them, you know, uh, seamlessly to the next box before they even have a chance to rest their muscles a bit. Uh, so uh, this is a, uh, this is a, as bad as the robber barons in the 19th century, the railway robber barons. This is a case study in how the unchallenged power of a large employer gives individual workers no chance to get a fair deal. So even though this is one of the most profitable companies on the planet, uh, the workers have near minimum wage conditions, below minimum wage for some of the delivery drivers because they're paid on a gig basis, and uh, incredibly uh, challenging and even dangerous jobs. So if anyone needs a union and deserves a union, it's Amazon workers. Now, how do we get one? That's the question. Lots of countries around the world have got unionized Amazon facilities, so it's a question of what the laws are. In America, they've obviously been trying to unionize some of the Amazon warehouses. Uh, in America, the labor law is absolutely stacked uh, to keep unions out, and, and that's uh, being experienced. In Canada, our laws are fairer, but not fair. So we do have organizing drives underway at Amazon facilities across the country, and I'm confident uh, sooner or later the workers at Amazon are going to get a union and they're going to use that union to negotiate a little bit more of that enormous pie that they are cooking for Amazon, for Jeff Bezos and the other owners of Amazon. Uh, but I think it would be better if our labor laws were more receptive and made it uh, in a way more feasible and faster for workers who want a union to get a better deal. Uh, to be able to get one because right now it's uh especially in the private sector when the company is out to stop the union as amazon is you know it's like a battle to the death uh to try and get the union together to convince workers that it's first of all legal that they won't get fired amazon is not going to shut down okay there's no way that's going to happen so don't listen to those threats and uh let's get together and uh, and negotiate a raise and some decent working conditions and and a pension and people aren't going to stop using Amazon, too. <laughs> no way. Amazon has got so much power, so much market power. It's a near monopoly in some segments of the business. So much profit. There's an enormous wedge, an economic wedge there that workers can and should get a share of. I want to get one last issue uh, on the table with you here. And it's this is Bill 124. It's basically... Uh, limits the annual salary for workers in the public sector, including many nurses, uh, personal support care workers. I should say that TVO actually falls under this salary cap as well. And uh, the unions aren't too happy about this. It maybe seem like an obvious answer as to why, but maybe you could just tell us a bit why unions are opposed to this. Well, again, and it's not just the unions as institutions, it's the hundreds of thousands of workers who've put their lives on the line uh, trying to care for people through this pandemic. And, and the, it's just a, absolutely an outrage that a government that claims it's here for the workers, you know, this is the rhetoric that Mr. McNaughton and Mr. Ford have been uh, have been putting forth for several months because they figure it's important to get reelected to say that I'm on the side of the common person. Yet we're going to uh, put this ridiculous salary cap on one percent uh, for uh, three years, uh, and uh, and we're going to dictate it. Never mind the market. Never mind collective bargaining. We're just going to dictate you all get one percent. And this was a very bad idea when it was implemented, but when it was implemented, inflation was 2% and it was still a bad idea. Today, inflation is 5.5% and rising. It could be 7%. 
given the latest hikes in gasoline prices. It could be 7% by the time Ontarians go to the polls. So you've got hundreds of thousands of people seeing their cost of living go up 7% and the government dictate saying your pay will go up 1% and there's nothing you can do about it. First of all, it may be unconstitutional. We have a charter of rights in Canada and judges have interpreted that charter to protect the right to collective bargaining. So it may be unconstitutional. I can assure you it is incredibly unpopular. Any Anyone in healthcare or education, you know, who, who was doing a job despite the pandemic to support people in Ontario now gets slapped by the government uh, by saying you're only worth 1% even though prices are going up five or six times faster than that they are going to be outraged. And I, I do think this will be a legal issue and it will be a bargaining issue and it will be a political issue uh, at the election. Yeah, I should mention as well that uh, the union that I'm a part of, CMG, is part of a lawsuit uh, along with a coalition of other unions. So I just want to put that on the record for uh, full disclosure. Very Listen, transparent is there... of you, Colin, very transparent. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, is there any closing thoughts you'd like to, uh, to leave us with about unions or anything else? Um, I've studied uh, economics, of course, for uh, most of my adult life, and uh, there's a, a kind of a, an essential truth that I have noticed in comparing how economic systems work. There is no society in history that has achieved what I would call mass prosperity. You know, the idea that an average working person could have a comfortable, relatively secure life, perhaps own a home, you know, and and help their kids go to university or college. That kind of, you know, we, we used to call that the middle class, which is a bit of a fuzzy term, and, and the middle class is under threat. But that type of prosperity where people had a share in the wealth of society. No society in history has achieved that without unions and collective bargaining. And it's because of that fundamental asymmetry. You as an individual worker have got no power to win that, okay? You will be tr treated as a productive input and your cost will be minimized by your employer unless you've got some kind of institutional or collective uh, reinforcement for your right as a working person to have a decent standard of life. And uh, in this regard, I think unions play a public good function. It actually leads to a healthier society and a stronger economy, not just better wages and benefits for union members, but a system that works better uh, in terms of lifting the living standards of mass numbers of people. And I think if more people understood that, um, I think we would uh, have, I, I think, um, uh, a stronger and more gut level acceptance that unions play a vital role and we should support them instead of vilifying them. I think that's a great place to leave it. Jim, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on OnDocs. Thank you, Colin. Great to chat with you. And that's the podcast. You can catch American Factory on Netflix. While you're here, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us. It helps new listeners to find the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at ellis 81 And you can follow me at Namshine, all one word. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hollowell, and executive producer Laurie Few. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next screening.